Hi, everyone. So as some of you may know, and some of you may not know, late at night, I like watching stories about obsession and stalking by myself in bed, because that's a smart thing that people do. So before we get started, let's let's talk about obsession. What happens when you literally become so obsessed with a person, you can't let them go? What will you do to make your obsession love you and worship you? What happens when the object of your obsession dies? What lines are you willing to cross to keep your obsession near you? And think about these questions for a second and think really hard about them. And I actually want you to pause and ask yourself these specific questions. Be honest. Be absolutely honest. How far would you go? Would you go to the grave and back for this obsession? And that's kind of where our podcast is leading us tonight. So, if you're new here, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. So this isn't, this is something that is very bizarre. And this made a lot of shockwaves when it happened. And it, if you need a trigger warning, there is some weird, weird shit's gonna happen in this podcast. I'm not gonna lie to you. There will be mention of necrophilia. There will be mention of facial reconstruction. There's a lot to unpack here. So if the necrophilia really bothers you, which it should, unless you're like, oh, it should really bother you. It should really bother you. Moving forward. So that's kind of your trigger for this episode. If you're uncomfortable with necrophilia, you're going to be really uncomfortable with this episode. So this is the story of Carl. Tansler and Elena. Now, I have to tell you that I have known this story for a long time. And I actually remember sitting at a bonfire with a bunch of my friends, and we were all drinking at the time. I don't really drink anymore, spoiler alert. But I remember we were talking about what weird, messed up things we'd heard. And I brought this story up. And it was like literal crickets around this bonfire. People were like, why do you know that? Don't tell me that. I don't want to know this. So that, that'll speak volumes about this story. So Carl's born and raised in Germany. And some accounts state that he, he would sign his name as Count Carl von Consul. Implying that he was some kind of dramatic nobility. Now, during his childhood in Germany, and while later traveling briefly in Italy, he claims to have been visited by a dead ancestor named Countess Anna Constantina von Kossel, who would reveal the true face of his true love, an exotic, dark-haired woman. And he was pretty adamant that these visions were real, and that anyone he married the first time would not be his true love. So he would marry around 1920 and he'd have two children. One would survive to adulthood, the other would die from diphtheria, which was a pretty pretty serious thing in that time frame. So he would later immigrate around 1926 to Cuba, and maybe he was looking for his dark-haired, exotic true love in Cuba. 
And that didn't really work out for him because A, he's still married at this point. And B, he would later immigrate to Florida, where Carl would become this radiology technician at a marine hospital. So it's 1930 now, and it's April 22nd. Enter Maria Elena Helen Milargo de Hoyos. She was considered a local beauty, but she was also in need of some serious medical attention. She was known as Elena, and she was the daughter of a local cigar maker who was quite successful. Now, on February 18, 1926, Elena would marry a man named Luis. And Luis would leave Elena shortly after. Unfortunately, she suffered a miscarriage of the couple's child. And it, it destroyed the relationship between the two of them. And he would later move to Miami. Elena was still legally married to him at the time of her death, which is very important to note. So it's 1930. And Elena is diagnosed with tuberculosis, which was extremely fatal and extremely serious in this time of history. So Carl now sees her as his obsession. She's this dark-haired beauty. She must be the one his ancestor was talking about. So he would, he would treat her, and he would hope to have some sort of magical cure for tuber tuberculosis for her. And the thing is, he would treat her at the family home where she lived with her mother and father and he would bring all sorts of medical equipment with him all sorts of remedies that he could dig up anything to save Elena he would also bring gifts for her jewelry clothing everything she never asked for but could have wanted and the thing is she never re reciprocated his love ever Carl was hoping that she would fall madly in love with him, and they would ride off into the sunset. And that just never happened, because he was 53 years old, and Elena was 21. That's 32 years apart. And it's gross to me. Like, you're 32 years apart. You're literally old enough to be her father. And in this time frame, you, you could have been her grandfather. She definitely might have seen you as a grandfather figure. And it's weird that, like, he, he was so obsessed with her. He was so obsessed with this woman. And he was trying every single remedy he could think of to save her. However, Elena would die in 1931. Carl was absolutely beside himself. His ancestor must have been wrong. This can't be right. She shouldn't have died. She was his one true love. And the obsession took this, like, weird turn. So he would end up building this magnificent above-ground mausoleum. And her he asked her family, could he build it as a testament to her memory and how beautiful she was and what a treasure she was to the world. And when you're a grieving parent, when somebody says something so kind to you, I can see them being like, of course, you know, we trusted you so much. You did the best you could. We would love that. And as it was extravagant. It was huge. But the weird thing is, Carl would spend every single night at this mausoleum and he would like go into the mausoleum and he would according to him 
have these wonderful, fabulous talks with Elena. And, you know, her spirit would visit him and beg him to take her out of the cemetery. She would serenade him with her favorite Spanish song. It, it's very bizarre to think that a man that she did not have any romantic feelings for would come back from the grave to do this. So, she died in 1931, and, and that's very important because I want you to think. It's April in 1933. Now, Carl's going to remove her body from the mausoleum. And I want you to think about decomposition when you hear that fact alone. There isn't a lot of things that can stop decomposition. At this point in history, while embalming was active, we don't know how active and how well an embalming was. And if he was at her mausoleum every night, was he exposing her body to air? speeding up decomposition it's above ground it's florida heat will speed up decomposition rapidly so you're probably asking yourself now aside from this being disgusting how did he get her body out of the graveyard what did he do where did he take it well carl and his toy wagon in the dead of night would remove elena from the mausoleum and he would transfer her in this toy wagon to his home. Now, like I said, decomposition happens quickly. So you have to think that the smell alone would have been horrific. Absolutely horrific. Aside from what she looked like, which would have been pretty terrifying. Carl, for his part, will reconstruct her face the best he can with wires and wax. He, in a sense, will perform an embalming after the fact. So, like, her bones are, are falling apart because of decomposition. He will wire the bones in her body together with piano wire. He will reconstruct her face with wax he will fit glass eyes into her into her eye sockets and like this is a lot of work in terms of obsession he was not going to let her go so as her skin would decompose he would replace it with silk cloth soaked in wax and plaster of paris and plaster of paris essentially is almost like concrete so to speak it is very hard and it once it once it dries it's very hard so and it, it just gets worse from here her hair is falling out because hair does fall out after death because your scalp is decomposing he will create a wig from her hair with hair he obtained from her mother so now this is this is all kinds of messed up. This is a lot of work. And I mean, if something fell off her body, he would continue fixing it until something like over half of her body was plaster and wax. 
And this is, like I said, when I asked, how far are you going to go with an obsession? He went to the moon and back. Like, there was no going back after this. So, as a general FYI, if you don't know this, I'm going to drop some science facts on you. Blood is the fastest decomposing tissue in the body. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because if there's any any kind of tissue in the abdominal cavity or any kind of wet area, it'll, it'll speed up decomposition. So now her corpse, aside from being mutilated in a sense, he will fill her abdominal and chest cavity with rags. And this is so he can keep the original shape of her body. The original shape of her chest which again is very bizarre that he knew three years after two or three years after she died what her measurements were now like i said he would do this to keep the original form of her body and he would dress her in stockings jewelry and clothes gloves and he'd keep the body in his bed so Decomposition is not pretty. Liquid happens, and I would think if there's still... If he's... Putting perfume or anything like that, I would think it would, it would keep... Adding liquid to decomposing tissue, and it would, in a sense, leak. So, because he's got this body in his bed... He would use copious amounts of perfume to keep the smell tolerable. Um, he would use disinfectants and preserving agents, which I'm assuming at this point would be formaldehyde, to mask the odor of a decomposing body. And he would do this to also try and preserve what flesh remained and to stop decomposition, which at this point, if he's using perfume and disinfectants, that's that's a lot. And I mean, it's 1940 now. It's almost 10 years later. 10 years. He finally gets caught with her body. So, her sister, in October, starts hearing these rumors of Carl Kanzler sleeping with the disinterred body of her sister. So, she confronts Tansler at his home, where Elena's body was eventually discovered. He was also caught dancing with her body in front of an open window, which is mind-blowing on its in itself. So, Tansler is arrested and he's detained. And I want to talk about what two physicians would state when they attended the autopsy of her body in 1940. And, like, this is... It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, so he had in inserted a vaginal tube in the vaginal area of Elena's corpse that allowed for intercourse and this is a lot like this is 
he literally thought of everything he could do to keep this woman. And it, it's a lot. So Carl Tanzler is psychiatrically examined and found mentally competent to stand trial. And I got to tell you right now, I don't know how he was found competent. Like this, this reeks of someone being crazy. I shouldn't say crazy. This reeks of somebody being very, 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 very mentally ill. And he was to stand trial for wantonly and maliciously destroying the grave and removing a body without express authorization. And like, even, even now you have to have a certain amount of paperwork to exhume a body and you have to have a pretty good reason. And there was no good reason for this body to be ex exhumed. So get this. So he has a preliminary hearing and he was supposed to hold answer to the charges that he was charged with. But the case was dropped and he was released because the statute of limitations for the crime committed had expired. He's dancing with a corpse in front of an open window that he took out of a grave 10 years ago. I, this is, I don't know how he got off on that. Like that does not, I, I, I am absolutely gobsmacked for lack of better words, how the, the case was dropped. So Elena's family would actually take her remains and they would bury her in an unknown location with an unmarked grave. And the whole reason they did this is because they thought had Carl knew where they buried Elena, he would just go get her from her grave and take her home again. Which I think he would have had he have known where she was buried. And like, the thing is, he was separated from her, but he would create a death mask of Elena and he would actually create a life-size effigy of her. And he would live with this until he died at age 75. And his body wouldn't be found until three weeks after his death. And like, It just is so bizarre that he would, he was separated from her and he went out of his way to make this effigy of her because he was so obsessed. And there is this rumor that somehow or another, he died with the real body of Elena, that somehow, somewhere, somebody had switched the bodies for him and they were secretly returned to him. And this is where obsession knows no bounds. Absolutely none. And it's just such a bizarre story. You don't, it, it rocked the United States when this was held because people couldn't believe that someone would be so obsessed with someone that didn't even love them. So, I wasn't sure how long Carl and Elena's story would take, but that's okay. 
because I kind of want to get started on another one tonight. What do you know about the Black Dahlia? What do you know? There's a lot of things that we inherently know when we talk about Elizabeth Short. And there's a lot of things that we don't know. And her death created something. Created a new law. Which is the only thing that was good. So let's talk Elizabeth Short or the Black Dahlia. She would be born July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. She would be the third of five daughters. Now, in 1927, she was troubled by bronchitis and asthma. And she'd undergo lung surgery at age 15, which doctors would suggest she go to a, a milder climate just to help her breathe. So she got she got to spend her winters in Florida with friends and she would do this for around the next three years of her life. Now in her sophomore year she would just drop out of school. Just plain old dropout. And she would just kind of move around from here. But at age 18 she would go live with her father in California. And she hadn't seen him since she was six. And they would start arguing all the time. And in 1943, she'd move out. And Elizabeth would take a job at an Air Force. And she would start living with U.S. Air Force Sergeant. And the rumor is that he would beat her up. So she would leave. So it's mid-1943 and she moves to Santa Barbara. Where she gets arrested. For drinking at a local bar while underage. And the authorities would send her back to Massachusetts. But... She'd return back to Florida, and she would only make occasional visits to her family. So now she's in Florida, and she meets another Air Force officer, and his name was Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. And he would propose marriage to Elizabeth, and she would happily, happily agree. But he died. He would be in this horrible, awful plane crash less than a week before the end of the Second World War. So she'd spent the entire war thinking she was going to marry him. And a week before the end of the war, he died, which is actually pretty sad if you think about it. So now let's kind of talk about the last six months of Elizabeth's life. She would move back to Southern California, specifically the Los Angeles area. And she'd start working as a waitress and she rented out this room on Hollywood Boulevard and various reports will state that she was an aspiring or would-be actress. And even though she didn't have any actual sources, this is kind of one of the things that people will know about. She had no acting jobs that we know of or credits. So now it's 1947. And it's January 9th, and Elizabeth would go home after a brief trip to San Diego with a man named Robert Red Manley, a 25-year-old married, 25 -year -old married salesman she had been dating. And we're not going to talk about a man who cheats on his wife. That's pretty gross, if you ask me. We're not going to get into that nutshell. So, he will state that he drops her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA and that Elizabeth was going to meet her sister who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. But by some accounts, 
The staff at the Biltmore see Short using the lobby telephone. And shortly after, she's seen by patrons of a place called the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which is around third and pardon me, 600 meters away from the Biltmore Hotel. But when we talk about January 9th to January 15th, there is no record of Elizabeth anywhere. She's gone missing this entire week and nobody knows where she is until they find her. So it's the morning of January 15th, 1947. Her body's found severed into two pieces and it's found on a vacant lot of South Norton Avenue. And this is mid midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street. It's in a neighborhood called Limert Park. And it was approximately a largely undeveloped park. But a resident named Betty discovered the body. Sad thing about Betty discovering the body is she found it at 10 a.m. But she had her three-year-old daughter. And she thought that it was a discarded store mannequin when she saw Elizabeth. When she realized it was an actual person, she went and called the police. So let's talk about the trauma. So her body wasn't just cut in half. It, it was mutilated and drained of blood. So she's pretty white when they find her. The medical examiner would determine that she'd been dead for around 10 hours. And rigor mortis starts 12 to 24 hours after death. So it could have been, there's a lot of ways to determine how long somebody's been dead for. Discoloration of skin, body odor, gas. It, there's something called purge if it's happened. I doubt that would have happened here. There, there's a whole like checklist aside from not breathing that you can determine how long they've been dead for. So this leads to her being murdered sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early morning hours of January 15th. So the interesting thing is her body was washed. So despite the fact that fingerprint recognition and DNA evidence were not common in the 40s, the killer did think enough to wash her body. Now, this is going to be hard for some people to hear. Her face had been slashed from the corner of her mouth to her ears. And this effect is known as the Glasgow smile. So when you think about being cut from your ears to the corner of your mouth, that's, that's a wide part of your face. So it was a lot to take in at first. Not only that, she would have several cuts on her thighs and her breasts, and entire portions of flesh were sliced off the body. Now, her body was positioned at some very interesting angles. So, the lower half of her body, her foot was away from the upper part of her body, and her intestines had been tucked underneath her butt. Now, when we talk about her torso with the head, her hands are over her head and her elbows are bent at right angles and her legs will be spread apart. So the thing is, 
there's a lot here to unpack with just we can have our speculations but what really happened to elizabeth like there's some was this a serial killer was this a one-time thing was this a spurned lover oh detectives will find a heel print among tire tracks next to her body and they'll find a cement sack containing watery blood and it's it's a lot it's a lot to take in there is a rumor but it wasn't in the autopsy report that she was covered in cigarette burns and these were inflicted while she was still alive but again that's not in the autopsy report so i can't i cannot state to that but it's suggested in the autopsy report she had been forced to consume human feces after they checked her stomach and it it's that's a lot to take in right there so it's it's a lot it's a lot to know that it's also worth noting that she had ligature marks on her ankles wrist and neck and she would have irregular lacerations with superficial tissue loss so superficial just means like a scratch not a scratch but it it's not a serious cut it's very superficial like it would be like if you accidentally cut your arm and, but there were also lacerations on her right forearm, left upper arm, and the lower side of her chest. So it's important to note that according to the autopsy report, there was very little bruising along any incision line. And the incision line that they're talking about the most is when she had been cut in half. So they would remove part of the spine between the second and third lumbar, lumbar vertebrae. And this would separate the two pieces of the book would separate the body. Now, there is very little ecchymosis, which means bruising, along the incision line. This would suggest that because there is no bruising, this was performed after death. And there were lacerations on the side of her face. And it's a lot to take in if you've never heard stuff like this. Like, it's a lot. There was small bruising on the side of her head, which would be consistent with blows to the head. So officially, officially, she was bludgeoned, according to them, from hemorrhaging. And the cause of death as well could be due to the hemorrhaging from the lacerations in her face and the shock of blows to her head and her face. So if we're, if we're going officially, officially, it would have been the lacerations to her face and the shock from blows to the head and the face. Excuse my dryer, it's being a little rude right now. All right, I think that was the last one. So they would also examine her genitals and it suggested she may have been raped and samples were taken, but the results came back ne negative for any sperm, which is interesting. So, I mean, here we have a case where sexual assault might have been a motive, but there's no evidence to prove that any sexual assault happened, unfortunately. Now, what is truly unfortunate here is that to this day, we do not know who killed Elizabeth. None of the leads the police ever got ever panned out to anything. There were suspects but there was never any evidence from any of them that they had done it so there's also the rumor that elizabeth was engaging in prostitution but that's neither here nor there the thing is 
Elizabeth, when she was murdered, I don't know how to describe the brutality of it other than just explaining what happened, but I feel as though this might have been somebody who knew her, and this very well could have been obsession. That is literally a speculation, but I don't think this was random. That was a lot of time. And for someone to sit there and know they had to cover their tracks and know they had to wash the body to get rid of DNA is a lot. So that, again, speaks to my conclusion of obsession. Now, there was one thing that has happened after her murder is a bill called for the formation of a sex offender registry and the state of California will become the first U.S. state to make the registry for sex offenders mandatory and I think had that have happened sooner maybe Elizabeth would have been alive we just don't know we have this week of time from January 9th to January 15th that's just space we have no idea what happened. We have no idea if Elizabeth knew her killer. We have no idea what happened within that week. All we know is what happened when her body was found. And I mean, her murder is one of the most brutal crimes in American history. And it's probably one of the most infamous unsolved cases because so much was done to her remains and yet we still don't know. We have no idea. Who did this? Why they did this? What we do know is that her murder is something that we still talk about to this day and that her murder has a specific name. And that specific name is the Black Dahlia murders. Murder, pardon me, not murders. So, the best praise I can ever get is if you share the podcast with a friend. And you're probably asking yourself, well, if I share the podcast... Where can I tell my friend to listen? Well, you can follow me on Spotify. You can follow me on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. As well, you can always follow me on Facebook, Murder, Mystery, and History. Same profile picture as the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, Murder, Mystery, and History. Same picture as the podcast. And if you're feeling a little shy, don't worry. We all do sometimes. You can always email me at murder, mystery, and history at gmail.com. So if there is a murder you want me to talk about, if there is a mystery, let's do it. If there is some bizarre historical event you want me to talk about, much like the beginning of this podcast, I'm all ears. Let's do it. Until we meet again.